So what we're speaking about yesterday was this idea of having the flexibility to be able to be influenced and impacted by the world around us. And that flexibility, that willingness to be changed by events that change us is not actually a given. In fact, it's something which has to be cultivated. We have to work on it in order to create a real sense of adaptable resilience to the multiple events that affect us on a day-to-day level. And this internal flexibility is going to be actually a very important component of Pesach. And I'd like to bring together preparation for, for Pesach and the present situation and, the, and continue the themes that we've been speaking about until now and kind of like lift them up to, to a different, a different uh, dimension when we, we weave into them the story of Pesach. And I think it's very relevant. One of the most compelling things about our consistent engagement with Torah is the freshness that it brings to our life. Not only in terms of in a situation where most people, tragically, are, uh, I don't know about most people, some people, tragically, when they're in a situation when there's time, they may say, um, you know, what am I going to do to kill this time? And I think the expression of killing time is apt in as much as killing time is, is, is murder. And the murder that's being committed is against our own self and our own lives. Because our life happens in time. And if we can't use time in a way that's giving us more life, so then we're losing out. We're actually killing a part of ourselves. So what Torah gives us is a unstopping, unwavering demand in every given moment to continue to discover and to enrich and to explore lives. That's an interesting thing that when the Torah frames the mitzvah of the study of Torah, it frames it in a very exceptional fashion. Most mitzvot have a specific time and context in which they are played out in. Tefillin are limited today to the to the, to Shachri's prayer, but in the times of the sages, it was the entire day, but not at night. Tzitzis are in the day, not at night. Shabbos comes once a week. Mitzvahs have a context. The exception to the rule is the study of Torah. The study of Torah has no limit to its time. There's no limit to, to the study of Torah. And it's almost as if it's the context. The mitzvah, the mitzvah of the study of Torah is the context that we inhabit as Jews. And every waking moment essentially is meant to be engaged in the study of Torah. Now, don't let's understand that in a too simplistic fashion and think that, well, every single moment of my day, I have to be engaged in, um, have a book in front of me and I have to be shockling back and forth learning. Rather, the, uh, the, the approach to life in every one of its dimensions has to be in order to 
discover in that moment some deeper idea that's contained. Of course, the, the mitzvah of Talmud Torah implies the actual knowledge of the of Torah, but it also implies that I have to learn my situations. And that's what we we're discussing previously, that the power of flexible, adaptable life is instead of approaching life from a behavioral perspective, in terms of what should I do, we try to understand why I'm doing it and how I should do it and should I really do this. And when we have the inquisitive nature, we're curious as to what's going on inside of me and outside of me. So then there's at least a ability to shift and to reconsider and to re-examine and to change. In order to do so, we have to develop the power to contemplate. Contemplation seems to be at the core of change. And that's how we get to the story of, of Mitzrayim, of Egypt, and these two characters. On the one, on the one side, we've got the, the, the two forces which are plays, essentially motion, Aaron, Moses, Aaron, against Paroi, Pharaoh. And it seems to be that one of the fundamental points of, of difference is the capacity to make things relevant to my life. And Pharaoh excels at gross negligence in regards to internalization and integration. And the way that that transpires is that Moshe Rabbeinu comes and he comes with a statement and an appeal. He says there's been a nation that's been enslaved. This nation has a special destiny, a special legacy, and there's a higher spiritual power that he's taking care of this nation and guarding them and wants them for his purpose. And hence he wants to rescue rescue them, take them out from your control and allow them to be free and to be um, free to do as they choose. And Pharaoh's immediate response is, I I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, I don't see any, any call for this. I don't know who this God is that you're referring to and I'm not interested. And then Moshe Rabbeinu comes along with a, um, a sign and he, uh, he, gives, he, gives, he gives Pharaoh, he changes his staff into a snake and he makes the, um, the snake eat up the staff as a staff, eat up the staffs of the Egyptians. But Pharaoh's approach is, well, you know, well, you could do a trick. I can do that trick, and he gets his magicians to ch- turn their staffs into, 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 into snakes. And then when after the plague of, of blood, so Pharaoh says, oh, what do you mean? I can make a pla- plague of blood, and he gets his magicians to make a pla- plague of blood. And then after the frogs, so he gets his magicians to make frogs. Until he gets to the plague of, of lice, when his magicians give up their ha- give, hold up their hands and they say, it's belukimi, this is the finger of God. We can't do this. We can't reproduce this. So what's that, what's that mechanism that, that you know, Moshe Benu comes and he says, well, I'll do this. And, and they respond and say, well, we'll do this as well. So I think what the mechanism is, and Rebbe Rucham speaks about this as well, we need to, Pharaoh needed to justify his existence. And he needed to justify that the new information presented to him wouldn't threaten his current existence. He had an agenda, he had preconceived notion, he had the script clearly written for himself. And his script that said, 
I am the king of the world. I am a God and everyone obeys me. I'm in control of this nation and there's no one above me. That's his script. In that script, there's no place for God. So what happens when God comes around? So he's got two options. He can throw away his script and say, okay, the script was wrong. Or he can say, no, 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 no. My script is right. And what's happening can be explained in the context of my script. So when you actually look at it, it's absurd. Moshe Rabbeinu comes, Aaron, they come and they take the entire source of water, which was the, the equivalent to the Egyptian um, financial economic basis. This is where they derived the, this was their, their, their natural and most fundamental national industry that was keeping the whole country going. And he completely sabotages it. There's no longer any water in Egypt. And people are desperate. They, they're dying of thirst. And they go over to Pharaoh, and he's obviously aware of this. And he says, well, my, Egyptians, my Egyptian mag magicians can do this. But yeah, you're right, so they can do that. But don't you see what's going on? Don't you see that your, your country's gone to pot? Don't you understand that people are in the, in the throes of, of dying of thirst? So how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you deal with that? So that, that's something which has been called in, in the modern world cognitive dissonance. That when, you know, there's dissonance means an uh, interruption. It's like it's a, um, an, a lack of resonance, the opposite of resonance. There's no, there's no connection, there's no cohesion. There's cognitive dissonance, which means that my brain doesn't compute what's going on around me. So because the script of Pharaoh is so strong, so provided he can find a way to justify that there's something not supernatural about the events, even though if you step back, it's blindingly obvious, but if I can hinge my script on some tiny little aspect, I'll go for it. Now that's a fascinating insight into psychologically how we defend and cling on to scripts that we've written for ourselves and do not want to change. We don't need to be able to dismiss the reality as we see it. The reality could be as it is, but provided we can come up with one far-fetched theory that could possibly justify what's going on, we'll stick to that against the overwhelming evidence. And that's what happens to Pharaoh. So, so what happens is that the, the, actually the, the nature of the, of the plagues escalates. And after blood, then it's frogs. And the frogs fascinatingly go to his house first and first and Rebuchan points out you know like what is this the, the sequence of events that the, the frogs this, this attack of like these like reptile creatures are invading e Egypt and they all head off to the palace first um, and Rebuchan brings out a very interesting point about the subtlety of the way that things are computed in the divine orchestration of events nothing is ever random and even the sequence of events that Pharaoh, who is the major culprit in the story, he's the one that gets um, addressed and punished first before everyone else. And even in that, in this like huge overturning, and one would think, well, you know, once we once we overturning reality, I mean, are we really going to be concerned about the sequence in which it occurs? I mean, we're going to get the point. Even in that, there's an absolute delicate attention to detail that the major culprit. Um, gets the gets the suffering first. So that's I think that's a fascinating insight into the, the the precision in the divine orchestration of events. But what happens is this doesn't bother Pharaoh either. And there's an interesting 
phrase that when when he goes off and he stomps off to his palace, the the Torah uses this phrase um, that the Yifin Pari the Yavel basically shasli by Gamle Zois, and he Pari turns around v'loy shatli bo. And he didn't place his heart even on this one. And this is where kind of we develop this whole process of how does a ruler live through a, a series of events that completely and totally seem to put in front of him a very clear picture, and yet he's able to avoid that clear picture from evolving in front of his eyes. And it's quite simple. Don't think too deeply about it. All you have to do is not think about it. And when you don't think about it, so then you can justify in your own mind absolutely anything. And therefore, the opposite, and that's kind of going to be the, 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 the polar opposites in terms of what is the lesson of Mitzrayim and what is the lesson of Pharaoh. And those are two sides of the same coin. The lesson that we gain from Mitzrayim is a way of contemplating upon our life. And the imprisonment of Mitzrayim is a lack of con contemplation. Pharaoh is the symbol and representation of the thing that keeps us restrained. The word Mitzrayim means straits, two straits, straits in the sense of being trapped between two very narrow cliffs. So being trapped in Mitzrayim means being caught in tunnel vision. Tunnel vision stops me from seeing either side. I just look directly ahead. And when I look directly ahead, there's only one thing I can see. And if I can only look ahead and see one thing, so I feel that, well, oh, that's the only thing that I can see. That's the only thing there is. But the problem is not with the reality in front of me. The problem is with the fact that I have an inability to turn my head from side to side. And that's why it's a, it's a fascinating point that the Jewish people, when they fall prey to slipping back into Egyptian psychology, the way they're referred to is an amkshayor, a stiff-necked person. My next stiff, I mean, I, I'm stuck. I can't go like this. I have to look directly ahead. And if I look directly ahead, so then I'm unaware of what's on either side of me. So I swear to the fact that what I'm seeing is what is. But the problem isn't with the vision. The problem is with my inability because right on the side of me, there's a whole new world. And on the side of me, there's a whole new world. So the conflict of what, what is Mitzrayim and what is Yitzhak Mitzrayim? Mitzrayim is Pharaoh. What is Pharaoh? Pharaoh is tunnel vision. He can only see what he wants to see. And that's what Mitzrayim is. It's imprisoning, imprisoning us in a perspective where we can't see different possibilities, different options, different ways. We can only see this way. And the only reason we can only see this way is what freezes our neck from turning our head from side to side is the fear and the will to perpetuate the hackneyed script that we were written and now are trying our hardest to live out. So, in Mitzrayim, the, um, the focus was to keep people, and that was Pharaoh's idea in the slavery, was to keep people so busy that they wouldn't have a chance to think. Because they recognized that if they were given a chance to think, that would be their redemption. And as, the, as Moshe Rabbeinu moves in and starts to make his pleas to Pharaoh, so Pharaoh increases the workload to deprive them from, from thinking and from stopping and from reflecting, because he knew if they would do that, so there'd be a rebellion.
that's the first point. The first point is that the fundamental point of our redemption from Egypt and what we're trying to celebrate on Pesach is exactly the opposite of what Pharaoh held by himself and represented, which was an inability to be influenced and to process and to shift perspectives based on the inevitable evidence and experiences that are confronting him. And as things became more and more intense, so instead of him becoming more and more open and more and more, more, in other words, there could have been another end to the story in Egypt, if you think about it. Imagine if Moshe Rabbeinu would have gone to Pharaoh and said to him, you know, I've come here to save the Jews. And Pharaoh would have said, wow, that sounds like a really interesting, can you tell me a little bit about your mission and what it's all about? And Moshe Rabbeinu would explain that these people have been um, set aside because of their illustrious heritage from Avram and Yaakov, and they have a mission to perform in the world, and they can't do it right now. And Pharaoh would have said, I'm with you 100%. What can I do to help you? Uh, it would have been a very different story. But because there was a stubbornness, a kind of a, a lack of capacity to reevaluate, and a deep entrenched power control that didn't want to be relinquished, I'm not letting go of my hold. Remember, Pharaoh was a person that declared himself a god. And Moshe Rabbeinu would always meet him at that, op- that very, very um, awkward moment that Pharaoh wouldn't let in that he was mortal, which made it a bit different, difficult because how would he ever use the bathroom? So obviously he had a fantastic control of his bowels and every morning he'd head off to the, the, the Nile to relieve himself. And I imagine he didn't, have, uh, he didn't drink a lot of liquids during the day. So he was able to make it as if he never went to the toilet. Now that's got two connotations. The first connotation is this demonstration of mortality that he wanted to pretend he didn't have. So this delusional presentation, I'm a god, I don't need to go to the toilet. But actually, in Judaism, I'm not only saying this because my father's a gastro. In Judaism, there's a lot of talk about digestion and, um, and, and going to the toilet. You know, one of the most um, elevated brochas is the brocha that you make after going to the bathroom. It's, when you say the brocha, so you say, um, it's open revealed in front of your throne of glory, which means when you leave the bathroom, the place that you land up in, standing in front of Hashem in his throne of glory. That's like you've just got an audience of the king. What did you do to get to the audience of the king? Well, you just went to the toilet. Um, the way that our normative association with going to the bathroom is it's dirty and it's smelly and it's disgusting. And you think of you're trying to kind of avoid it and cover it up. But ironically, we like elevate it as, whoa, 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 this is, this is amazing. Um, so what's that all about? So, of course, Pharaoh tried to hide this. And that's why Moshe Rabbeinu would always like, come and meet him as he is about to, you know, um, go to the toilet. And he'd feel obviously quite awkward. And that was like a kind of a, a, a patching upon him to, to Pharaoh. But there's another idea that the idea of going to the toilet conceptually, and this is spoken about a lot in, the, in, in, in some of the mystical works, um, is the ability to sort out good from evil. The digestive process is where you ingest food and the food is a complex mixture of waste and nutrients. And the digestive process sorts between the waste products, which then a late expels and holds on to the nutrients, which it uses for the production of life. And thereby the digestive process is the ultimate decision-making 
between latching onto what's good in life and letting go of the waste product, which allows the digestive system to make essentially a decision as to how I should respond to this food that's putting into me. Because the food's an ambiguous composite of all different kinds of things. And it requires a certain amount of intelligence to say, ah, no, this is, this is real. This is going to help me for my life. No, then I have to push off. That's actually dirty and smelly. I'm going, to, I'm going to dismiss that. And therefore, the idea of not going to the toilet, not only is Pharaoh's um, kind of uh, demonstration of I'm immortal, but it's also a critique on him that he has no ability to sort the reality because sorting the reality means I look at the world and I say, what does this mean? What does this mean? Is this good? Is this bad? It, provides a, it implies a questioning process to actually think about things. And a person who, as it were, doesn't go to the toilet means he just gobbles up everything and just stays inside of him. It's undifferentiated. It's not modified. It's unfiltered. I just gobble up life. I just gobble up life. I gobble up. And I never get rid of any of it. It all just comes into me. There's no kind of careful thing. No, they, they have to push away. Oh, that actually hold into me which is always the process of choice and thinking and contemplation. So Pharaoh embodies the, he's a symbol of the lack of, of contemplation. He's a symbol of the lack of reflection. What I believe is what I believe. What I control is what I control. And then slowly but surely, the process of the redemption from Egypt is a dismantling of that ridiculous position and subtly demonstrating that beneath the world that appears to be a world which is um, controlled by set forces of nature, there's a higher order that runs the show. And this is just an illusion. And that's, the, that's always the, the, the battle between Pharaoh and the Jews and uh, essentially between Pharaoh and Hashem until Hashem slowly and subtly undermined one component after the other, after the other, until finally it climaxes in the control over the very act of living itself. And that's when the plague of the firstborn, where there's this capacity for Hashem to completely, in a way, pull away the curtains and say, you know, even that breath that you're about to take, I'm giving it to you. And the next one, that as well. And were I to choose to take it away from you, you would drop dead on the spot. And then you recognize that even the thing that we take perhaps for the most most for the gr most granted, which is our our continued existence, even that is not is not predictable and can't be forecast. Even the fact that we're breathing is a renewed gift from life, and it's actually reflected in the in Tehillim. It says Kol Tahalel Ka, which literally means every soul should praise Hashem. But the Gemara says I'll call Neshima v'Neshima each and every breath. A person has to essentially say thank you to Hashem. Interestingly enough, in the modern world, this practice has been rediscovered in the, uh, in the popula popularity of mindfulness and mindfulness meditation, where a lot of the modern meditational movements allow a person to connect his breath. And the very act of what's called watching, watching the breath which essentially means that the person subtly becomes in touch with the newness of each and every breath. And this is like sweeping the Western world like wildfire, 
and has given us the sense of we become dislocated. And one of the most grounding things that we can do is learn to breathe again. But from a spiritual perspective, learning to breathe again and recognizing that every breath is new and that's the most grounding thing for us is not only recognizing that every breath is new and recognizing that every breath is a new gift from Hashem, there's so much more to it. It implies a relationship, implies a continued involvement in even the most basic and elementary parts of my life. And that, and this is a really kind of fascinating point to try to integrate as we head towards Pesach, where what is the redemption from Pesach going to be? When we sit on the Seder night and we say, um, I have to see myself as if I went out of Mitzrayim. I have to tell myself, I have to tell my children, I have to tell my parents, I have to tell them the story of leaving Egypt. What's the story of leaving Egypt? If I take away the narrative and the actual fact of what occurred, what's the symbolism of leaving Egypt? It's leaving a constricted perspective of how the world works to finding a liberated perspective of how the world works. A constricted perspective of how the world works is seeing the world as a predictable set of cause and effect, which is uninterruptible and imperative. And a liberated perspective of the world is seeing the world as an ever-fluctuating universe which forms a dialogue between my life and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And as we move forward, we have this discussion about what is the next, where should I place my foot next? Where should I make the next decision? What are you telling me with this event? What am I telling you with my life? And it becomes engaged, alive, happening in this moment, in this time, until every moment becomes precious. And then we think about this notion of killing time, and it sends a cold shiver down our spine. Because killing time means what? There's time which is not pregnant with purpose. There's time which can't be deeply invested in the delving into the secrets of ourselves and the creation and the creator. Can there be such a thing? Our time in this world, theoretically speaking, is extremely limited. Would we waste a second? And then you get the back to this idea that there's this ongoing obligation to learn Torah, never, never second, that there's no obligation there. And everything that comes into life, which exempts us from the obligation of Torah, is only there as almost uh, an, a... Um, uh, maybe just to, to, to give a bit of a context and we can expand on this a little bit perhaps next week. There's a mitzvah of, of, of study of Torah, which is a perpetual mitzvah, which, which we're going to see how this ties into everything we're saying. But what happens if you need to do a mitzvah? You need to daven, you need to visit the sick, you need to do a chesed. So then the mitzvah of Talmud Torah is put aside. Um, but the minute that, 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 that what you've stopped doing um, has, has elapsed, so then it comes back again. So we have to understand what is this, 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 this strange mitzvah of, of Talmud Torah and how does it work? Another interesting point is, you know, when you make a bracha on something, there's a rule that you can't have an interruption between the performance of the mitzvah and the bracha. So for example, if I'm going to put on my tefillin, uh, I have to put on my tefillin immediately. And that's why I can't interrupt between putting my hand filling and my, my head filling um, because I have to focus on it. Now, in the morning, we make a bracha on the Torah. And we make it in the morning. Immediately afterwards, we go, Now, what happens if I then 
I daven, I have breakfast, I go work out, I come back, I do a couple of hours work, and now I want to, um, now I want to study some Gemara. Can I study Gemara without, say, without saying a bracha again? So the halach is, I can, but I don't understand. Between the time you made the bracha, before you started davening shachris until now, there's been this huge chunk of time whereby you haven't, you haven't been focused on Torah. So what happened to that chunk of time? Why, why aren't you, um, why are you obligated to make a new bracha? So I, I think there's, there's something which is going to be very different about, um, about this mitzvah of Talmud Torah, which seems to be, the, it seems to be the, uh, the thing that our life is made up of. We even say it in the bracha in Marif, ki heim that is what life is. So you have to figure out that Torah is life. It's not something on top of life. It's actually the stuff that life is made up of, which is going to be a major shift. But I think it's very much tied into this whole idea of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. So I, I think we've, we've run out of time, but I did want to at least start off this idea um, of, um, this idea of, of the relationship between the study of Torah, the openness to change, the ongoing energized recreation of the world on a constant basis, which provides incredible flexibility, trying to mirror that in ourselves, to be open, to be influenced and radically change when the situation requires us to ditch a script that's no longer relevant and bring the influence of Talmud Torah. So, Mitzvah we'll reconvene on Sunday, Sunday, 12.30 Israel time, and we'll, we'll go a bit further in um, exploring these ideas. Before we conclude, anyone can be free to un- free unmute yourselves if there's any questions that you'd like to ask. Questions?